to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Graham Nye and Chris Dominic. Now we return to our interview with Steve Solomon. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, Jason, do you ever find yourself craving something? All the time. I am craving an adult beverage. One that's clean, refreshing, relaxing. Oh, Bondi, mate, absolutely. Jason, you always do this to me. I'm not looking to go for a surf or a swim. I need a beach. I need a drink. Chris, an O Bondi is a cocktail made with sparkling water, a lime wedge to keep off the scurvy, and most importantly, vodka row. Proudly Australian, vodka row is a triple distilled vodka that's charcoal filtered for a cleaner, smoother taste. It's won awards and it's the best-selling vodka in Australia. You wouldn't happen to have one of those handy, would you? <laughs> I've got one right here. Did you just pass that through the internet? Boom! Oh my, that is fantastic. Sign me up. Get the clean, refreshing taste of Wonder Beach with Vodka Row. Flo, like it's when you know the guy next to you is ready to take that ball from you and he doesn't even have to see it almost, you know? It, yeah. That stuff's so fun and exciting. I was just thinking there's a, the great PhD book is called Flo, but his surname is like 29 letters and starts with a C <laughs> and he's Russian and I can't pronounce it. But anyway, it's a brilliant book. Okay, we, uh, we've talked a little bit about that incredible experience. I Just cu- out of curiosity, in that final, where is the field from? Are they the US, Trinidad and Tobago? Who are the great 400-meter runners other than yourself? In London? There were, there were no U.S. athletes in the final, which may have been a first first for a long time. I, I don't know what happened to you guys that year, Chris. Come on, man. Come on. And so so there were two Belgians. Um, there were two from the from the Bahamas. There was myself from... Hey, from you know why? I know why you're talking about Belgians, damn it. You're talking about Belgians because they also have compulsory voting. They do. Oh, we can talk about that too. We're tight, us and the Belgians. compulsory voting again. Yeah, we're going to go back there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god we're gonna get to democracy in a minute who else like, yeah the- and then uh, we had one from trinidad and tobago one from the dominican republic and one from grenada got it got it oh that's so interesting okay that's really really cool i kind of assumed america dominates everything um so i want to fast forward from the london games often in life we learn more from our misses and our, the things that didn't turn out the way you want it to than our successes tell us a little bit about the rio olympics and the lead up to that definitely the rio games was the moment in my life where I've, I've learned the most about myself and to, to I'm glad we started with London because that kind of can contextualize Rio in the sense that I had this magical run in London all puns intended yep. and everything kind of just happened it just worked for me it just it just came naturally I was I was fit I was healthy I was coming off good competitions overseas in Europe I was running fast everything was kind of working for me in the year of Rio there was a lot working against me I was coming back from hamstring surgery I had made the decision to take a, a year off Stanford and move to our Olympic Institute uh, back in Australia to train and ultimately I, I ended up missing the games by four hundredths of a second which is about the amount of time it takes for when you clap your hands for the sound to travel from your hands to your ears not quite that amount of time that's what it feels like to me basically an incomprehensible amount of time four hundredths of a second and it wasn't like I, I missed qualifying just one time I just missed it by a fraction of the second so many different times and remembering for you to qualify for the Olympic Games everything kind of has to be right the weather has to be right the competition has to be right you have to be right and, and it all has to happen on the day and the Rio experience it just didn't, it didn't happen for me and why I said it was such a profound moment in my life is not just my athletic career but my life is because 
because when we win, we celebrate. And when we lose or fail, we learn. Because I had to go back home and ask myself what happened. Why didn't it work? And that's where I started uncovering all the pieces that make me a good runner that were natural and, and, and I guess fit in naturally to me in my London campaign that only when I was when they were absent in Rio did I realize things like having good friends around you. You know, I was in Canberra, I'd moved away from college and I and I had no real good friends uh, where I was training for a, a year. So that was something I realized re- was really important to me. I had no family around me, which I realized was really important to me. I had no intellectual stimulus, which I realized is very important to me because when you're training as hard as I do and you haven't got anything to, sh- to distract you when you when you like that distraction, you just get antsy and you start thinking about yeah. your training mm-hmm. all the time. So why do you think Jason and I have a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't. I still haven't worked out the time of the day that Jason sleeps. <laughs> but yeah, the Rio experience was a great one. The Rio experience was a great one for me because it forced me to identify basically where am I at my best? How do I get the best out of myself? So when I was preparing to establish my environment for the Tokyo Games, instead of asking myself the question of where's the best place for me to train, which was the, the question that I asked myself ahead of the Rio Olympic campaign. And, and the answer to that question was at our Olympic Institute back in Australia in Canberra. I asked myself a variant of that question, which is where am I at my best? And that answer brought me back to Australia, brought me back to Sydney. And since then, I haven't missed a major championship and have been in the most consistent shape of my life. I broke the Australian indoor 400 meter record a couple of years ago when I was at Duke and um, and, and really am feeling good about the Tokyo Olympics. So without Rio kind of holding that mirror for me to look into and, and do some self-discovery and, and realize where, where I needed to be for, for the goals I wanted to achieve, I don't think I would be the athlete or person that I am today and carrying the confidence that I have in my plan ahead of the Tokyo Games coming up. Can you talk a little bit about your current preparation going into the Tokyo Games? Is it a case of blinkers on and 100% focus on the event and avoid any media that's currently kind of swirling around it? Very much so. I'm 100% convinced that the Olympics are going to happen and I'm training with that conviction. The reality is there's a pandemic still, uh, you know, taking over the world and there's still a lot of logistical complexities needed to be smoothed out for the Tokyo Games. But in my mind, as an athlete preparing, it's 100% happening because I can't have the, the slightest bit of doubt for me to push my body to what I need to push, I need to be sure that it's going to be worth it. And I and I and I genuinely do believe that it is going to happen. But more than that, I, it, it's not an option for me to believe that there's any doubt uh, that the games will go ahead. That's that's awesome from an athlete's point of view because it's as a someone who is desperate to see those games go ahead. I wasn't sure how how the athletes were reading it all. So yeah. um, that's that's really good to, to to know. That's good. I'd hey. Steve, I'd love to hear about your U.S. university experiences. Jason shared his view of the goods and bads of Australia and the U.S. What are your top three things that made your time in the U.S. such fun? To, to only pick three is is unfair, Chris. But um, <laughs> I loved I, I loved the U.S. college experience. My fate my favorite thing about the U.S. system is the fact that people come from all over the country and all over the world to university, and they because where I'm you know, from in Australia, we, we pretty much predominantly go to our local university and we kind of continue to mix with our friends from high school. And, and, and university is kind of just something that, that rolls very naturally from, from graduating high school and, and we, we start university. I'd love the fact that everyone from all over the country, regardless of socioeconomic status or race or gender, everyone came together for this four-year experience and, and got to arrive on campus without having a clue of what they wanted to graduate and, and leave from campus with, which would be my second point. Here in Australia, we have to decide before we start university what degree we're doing. 
In fact, we'd apply to a degree at a university versus America where you apply to a university and then once you're there, you kind of discover your degree. I really love that element. If we had if we had to pick early, there would be a, it'd just be a complete disaster. What, what yeah. I find fascinating about this, you went to Duke, right? Yes. So that means that you also picked up on uh, like American rivalries because I haven't met a person from Duke who doesn't hate the crap out of the University of North Carolina. I I, I say that my blood, <laughs> my blood bleeds cardinal red uh, because my undergrad was at Stanford, but by the yeah, time there I, you go. Oh, I that's guess, true. That's that's a bigger deal, which means you uh, hate Cal. Yeah, yes, I'm much more aggressive to Cal than I am to North Carolina. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Um, Cal, yeah. But I must I must wrap up with my third favorite thing, which was the fact that everyone that I went to college with stepped onto campus with the expectation that these are going to be four of the best years of my life. Like they brought that energy into starting university, which I thought helped make it such an amazing time. Again, absent from from Australia, where again, just something you roll into and and expected to graduate. It's just something that you do rather than like this idea that it's going to be a memorable and exciting experience. Um, I felt that really added to it. Hold on though. Wait a minute. Hold on. Steve, Jason, college isn't like a raging awesome experience in in Australia? Actually, it's a great point, Steve. I don't think that it it can be, but it's not like the US. It's Really? Yeah, I don't think no, so. No, definitely not. I mean, I never studied here, but I don't I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Jason's like, trust me, it's way more boring. <laughs> but I think, you know, a lot of the things is not everyone's on campus. You might be living at home and studying at university, which totally changes so the vibe it's of it. It's more of a commuter school. Yeah. And as a particular kind of person, I think, who wants to live on campus, live in college at, say, the big universities here in Sydney. And it's a very different vibe. Yeah. Okay. So I follow Steve on Instagram and uh, his following his training is amazing, but following his post-run spews are a highlight. Now, a spew for our American cousins is a throwing up event. Oh, and okay. I'm so curious because I run way slower but longer um and i want to understand how you can run to a point of throwing up and i want to know how you do that <laughs> <laughs> well i i i i guess i'm sure steve's thrilled about this question jason but so you did like he did six 200s up up a hill in centennial six 200s <laughs> yeah but i guess it comes down to being able to just continue to just push yourself and i think that's i've kind of learned that over time you know it's not something that I would do, you know, when I started competing, but with being able to build a kind of tolerance to the pain and, and the discomfort and be able to kind of push myself through those thresholds. And, I, you know, one of the things I like about it is in, in my everyday work, by if I'm in an Excel spreadsheet or something and I'm doing something super difficult, I'm having to redo something, you, you know, people sometimes ask me and they're like, oh, like, how, do you, like, how, do you, how do you keep doing this? Like, how do you, you know, having to restart that, you lost the file or whatever it was. And I said, this is easy. I'll tell you. <laughs> what's hard what's hard is lining up on um, fifth rep 200 knowing that you've got two more to go your head throbbing and knowing that you're going to be vomiting and you're going to be like in so much pain that you want someone to chop your legs off and you, you know your coach is going to be there with a watering can to help cool you down that's hard <laughs> so i think it i think it helps kind of give me the strength to to continue in a lot of different parts of my life it kind of it just gives me something that i do that's really hard and like that's the other one of my beliefs is i think that everyone in the world should do something that 
it's very hard because I think once you kind of set the bar there, uh, you're able to get a lot more out of yourself with everything that I, that is under the bar and, and is relatively hard, but but still not as hard as what for me is running that that last two two hundred meter hills, knowing what what carnage is going to come. And so, is it pure mind over matter? Like you're just getting out of your body and just ignoring all of the pain and all the rest of it? Yeah, I, I, it's not purely, but it's like it's very heavily skewed to the mind at that point. I have a theory on this, it, and it comes from years of coaching people in performance improvement work. I think that you have to get to the point where you care more about the milestone than you do about the pain. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. You have to be driven more by that. If the pain is really throwing you off, or let's just not limit it to pain. Let's call it discomfort, because it could be learning how to have a tough conversation with someone when you're not really interested in doing that sort of thing. But you know that the next milestone in your life, the thing that's going to get you to the next, you know, you'll be a director if you can do this, or you'll be a VP if you can do this. But you won't be if you can't do this. That kind of thing. I, I, I love that. Steve, I understand that in parallel to your incredible athletic career. <laughs> <laughs> He's had an aneurysm. Starting over. I understand that in your parallel to your incredible athletic career, you work on the strategy side at Uber Eats. Tell us a little bit about your work and how you apply your athletic mindset to work. I'm very lucky to, to be working at Uber Eats. I've been working with the business now for two and a half years, which really has been since since I came back from America and, and moved back to, to home in Sydney. I love it there. When I came back, uh, a little bit of context, I'll rewind the clock just a little bit. I, uh, I was pre-med at Stanford, human biology major. And when I was into my junior and senior year, I started to get the inkling that business was actually where I wanted to devote my energy to. And to test that, I needed to test to make Make sure that the fact that two of my friends in my freshman year dropped out to found the company and the fact that Facebook was a stone throw from campus and so was Google and so was Twitter and all these other big companies, I had to kind of do a litmus test to take a term from my science degree and see if my energy for business was a product of my environment at Stanford or if it was independent of that. So that's part of what drove me to do to do a degree in business. And then once I was settled on, on that formal education, I knew that I wanted to come back and, and work in business and, and, and start my career when I got back into Sydney. So when I moved back home, I had some great help from the likes of Jason and others introduced me to the different worlds of business. My entire network was in America. So when I came back, I had to kind of establish a new network here and, and kind of find out what it, what it was that I wanted to do. And also what company and role was going to be benevolent to my training demands and ambitions on the track. So to cut a long story short, Uber proved to be an amazing fit. I've enjoyed my time with them so much over the last two and a half years and, and look forward to continuing with the business for a long time. In terms of like how to balance it and, and the high performance mindset, I'm, I'm lucky in my role at Uber. I, I work with the big enterprise partners. So, so think of the McDonald's and, and the Domino's and kind of the big restaurant chains is I have a lot of autonomy in, in my work. I have a lot of ownership, which means that I can kind of work to my own time. I'm very self-aware that my best work and my deepest work is going to be done in the mornings because that's when I'm most alert. I know that I'm not going to get a lot of quality work done in late afternoons. In fact, I, I get most of my good training done in the late afternoon. So really just designing my schedule to fit in with where I work best gives me a, an efficiency advantage to my work. And then coupling that with what makes me happy, which is my athletics, has kind of given a really nice uh, symbiotic relationship between what I do in the office and what I do on the track. So Solo also writes a really awesome weekly newsletter, which I devour every week. This week, you spoke of your process in the final two weeks before a major and tied it to the current Australian Open tennis situation where we've got players in quarantine in Melbourne 
Melbourne and your pre-Doha World Championships last year. Can you speak a little bit to those things? Definitely. So the last two weeks heading into any major competition, um, and it doesn't matter if it's an Olympic Games or an Australian Open or a US Open, golf tournament, uh, anything. From an athlete's perspective, we're now past the point of, of getting stronger or getting fitter. You know, with two weeks to go, we're all about the finesse. Like we're all about sharpening up. And so there's a lot that we do, which is beneficial. But a lot of what we do is is to just make sure that we don't do anything wrong. We're so close that there's not a lot for us to gain, but there's a lot that can go wrong that we want to try and avoid. So I'll speak first to my experience at the World Championships in Doha, and then I'll, I'll leave us with a comment on the Australian Open. So coming into a, a competition, a major competition, the body burns a lot more calories than it does in kind of normal everyday life because we've got this nervous energy that this um, this event that we have been training for for in the in the event of a world championships years in the event of an olympic games multiple years is coming up and um one of the things that is quite difficult to monitor when you're your body is just naturally burning these calories because it's nervous is making sure that you don't lose too much weight too early because when you lose weight and you reduce your body fat percentage quite low you open up exposure to illness your body needs a certain amount of fat to be able to protect itself from illness and unfortunately in Doha I got that cocktail wrong I lost too much weight too early didn't eat enough leading into the championships and picked up a flu on the way from Italy which is where I was basing my preparations to Doha and it was horrible because there's, there's nothing you can do. I remember being on the starting blocks. The doctors gave me this saline solution to squirt in my nose to try and open up my nasal passages, which, you know, could not get a single molecule of oxygen through without the spray. And then, you know what it's like when you've got you've got a cold or you've got a really bad flu, you've got that like pressure in your head and you don't want to look down. It was like agony for me to be on the starting blocks in Doha because I had to bow my head, so to speak, when the when the starter's saying on your marks and I'm just wishing he'd blow the gun because it was it was, you know, so much pressure in the head. But you know, that was a learning experience for me and, and any athlete heading into a major games is like, stay healthy. And it's easier said than done. Stay healthy. Make sure that your body fat percentage doesn't drop too low. Make, make sure you're getting enough sleep. You're getting your vitamins. You're getting all the things that you need to do to remain healthy when you get to the start line is actually a challenge in and, in and of itself. And then in terms of what the, the athletes are dealing with in hotel quarantine, uh, right now in Melbourne, they're not worried about their fitness. They know that they're going to be fit. They're not going to lose a lot of fitness over two weeks. They're worried about is making sure that they're not losing too much weight and that they're mm-hmm. able to eat uh, like we would usually eat coming into a competition, which is you know kind of copious amounts of food. And then the other things that, that the athletes in the hotels are worried about at the moment, you know, in- include things like their touch. You know, not without being able to hit a tennis ball or see a tennis ball coming up at you at two hundred kilometers, two hundred miles an hour. Like, you know, you kind of lose that perception. But the good thing is that that all the athletes will know that those motor patterns will come back quickly. They've just got to have the time to do so. So, yeah, the, the weekly newsletter to which I know Jason's a fan and I'm very grateful for his support through it is really my way of trying to crystallize a lot of the ways that I think about a, a sport and athletics and the lessons that I learn in sport and, and apply to other parts of my life, but then also be able to give commentary into an athlete's perspective on, on things that are happening. And I thought the Australian Open was just a nice way for, for me to be able to give some empathy and understanding to, to my audience on what is it like for these athletes who are training all year for these four major championships and then to arrive in Australia and be stuck in a hotel room for two weeks. So Jason, I'll, I'll use the opportunity to, to thank you again for your support and encouragement through it all. No, not at all. And uh, yeah, that, Australia, you've got the vision of players with their mattresses up against the wall, smashing forehands and backhands into the yeah. mattress to try and keep their touch as you say, Steve. So that's, uh, yeah, pretty very cool. I think we've come to the end of our time with you, Steve. I want to thank you so much 
much we know how busy you are with Uber Eats and just training for the little athletics carnival up in Japan. Um, <laughs> we've really enjoyed the conversation. We wish you a really smooth final preparation, injury-free, flu-free, and we are um, wishing for a 42.9 world record in Tokyo. Thank you. I'll, I'll certainly be aiming for it. <laughs> Steve, it was really good meeting you. Thank you, Chris. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this chat. It was great. Steve Solomon. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's wow. the real deal. The real deal. No kidding. I can't believe he's 28 years old. I know. <laughs> What were, you do- what, what were you doing at 28? I mean, that's just, let's, come on, people. Think about this for a second. Were you like that when you were 28? No. I mean, come on. I mean, it, it's, that's a, there's a lot of knowledge in that, that man's brain. He's thought about a lot of things, and I found it extremely inspiring. Absolutely. Jason, I had not realized, though, you two had bonded over business. But then, you know, in hindsight, it's pretty clear he's not your running partner. So, <laughs> um... <laughs> It's inspiring as hell, though. What's your big takeaway? Yeah, uh, that I can't run 400 meters in 44 seconds. That was one big takeaway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that Usain Bolt data point was pretty cool, that he's faster oh than God. Usain Bolt over 400. Like, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. I mean, it's for amazing. me, the, the big the takeaways, there's so many, but I think if I tried to distill it down, I think he's a fascinating guy that has combined, like he's got deep curiosity, he's, he's well-read, and his focus and passion on an athletic pursuit which is so hard. And then seeing him as he's applying it in business and other realms of his life, I think that's really cool and really unique. And I think we've seen a lot of elite athletes that just don't have that element. And in fact, you know, you have a lot of stories of elite athletes who post-career, you know, they they really struggle because their identity is wrapped up in who they are as an athlete. Whereas with someone like Steve, like he's got this entire world, probably way bigger than the world of athletics ahead of him, which is just it's amazing. He's an incredible guy. And, you know, for you, you're a performance improvement consultant, um, you know, your whole life. What um, what advice would you give people who are struggling to improve? Oh, oh, you know what that means? That means that in the future, I'm going to ask you the, how are we going to save the world from environmental catastrophe, Jason? So you plan on that, all right? But since... less than, in less than 10 words, in, yeah, six, exactly, in exactly. six emojis. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds yeah that reminds me of in graduate school. Uh, my final in rhetorical theory was what what is rhetoric? Go. <laughs> Here's your essay book. Oh my god! Knock me out. Yeah, but you obviously yeah. passed. <laughs> yes, yeah, so actually, went, I was better with essay tests than I was with uh, with multiple choice. Mm. Uh, anyway, all right. So you put the quarter in. So here we go. I think individuals improve best by first having a vision of what they should be, and then comparing what they are, and then determining the barriers to development toward the vision. Mm. One of the big barriers to organizations improving is that individual performance is easier to see than process or systems-based problems. Mm -hmm. And often the only way to making a significant change is in the process or the system improvement, but improving organizational performance is clearly for another day because that's another quarter you got to put in. So individuals (laughs) often fail right out of the gate by not accurately assessing the current state, right? They they don't get a good baseline measurement. If you want to lose weight at some point, you got to get on a scale. If you haven't gotten on a scale in a while and you're afraid that you've gained more weight than you wanted to during COVID, wow, that's too close to home. You might skip (laughs) right to doing what you think helps you lose weight, right? Without getting a baseline measurement first. It's it's better than nothing to move in a healthier direction without stepping on the scale. But it's tough to accurately measure progress if you don't know where you are starting from. And it makes more, it makes it more likely that you will take a path to your goal that is far from a straight line if you do it that way. So let's just say you want to be a better public speaker. 
Mm-hmm. When I ask people how they would grade themselves, typically they'll often say, "I can hold my own," or "I, you know, I get by," or "I'm okay," you know, or something like that. The problem with this is that public speaking, like many things, has multiple dimensions to it. If you're a good mm. writer who wants to be a better speaker, you may have an excellent structure to your speech, but you might not know what to do with your hands. Or you mm. may speak in a monotone, or you might think speaking includes reading off the page with your eyes down the whole time. You know, it's it, it's not. Right. Right. So if I ask, what have you done to build your skills so far? People often say, I practice the speech in my head. Right. So to be clear, I think visualization is a good thing, but that's step one. There's good evidence supporting visualization and positive self-talk, but skills are improved through performance and feedback. This means at a minimum, you got to like record yourself performing your speech and watch it back or something like that. Most people don't do that because they like watching themselves speak and they they don't like the way their voice sounds. I swear it's that simple. This kind of referencing back to the interview with Steve, right? It's painful Mm. to do it. So you don't do it. If you care more about meeting the improvement milestone than the pain, like we talked about, you'll improve most of the time. This is the first, it's, this is the performance and the feedback. So the limitation here is that you only know so much about public speaking. So giving yourself feedback can only get you so far. So I'm about to land this ship, I promise. (laughs) Another example here might illustrate my point. Okay. So I'd like to have a better golf swing. This is actually true. Right. I don't know that much about golf swings. So I go to the driving range and I set up a camera to record me as I'm taking some brutal baseball swing hacks, right? (laughs) I look at my swing, pick up a few things and I improve. But if I get a friend who actually knows a lot about golf swings to come with me, analyze the video, give Mm. me feedback, et cetera. Now I've got the ability to improve my skills significantly. Got it. Right. Clearly some form of no pain, no gain is at the heart of it all. Working on being a better spouse or parent involves discomfort and something, Mm. sometimes the hardest part is just seeing the current state clearly as painful as it is. So it sounds a little dark, but the reality is that the incredibly exhilarating and confidence building part is hitting your goal. The act of accomplishing a goal and feeling that reward is motivating and makes you more skilled at improving performance in the future, because now you know how it goes. When you're going through the hard part, you know what you're looking forward to, to keep working at. That's really, in some ways, to me, the big secret is, have you accomplished something great enough, gotten that experience, gotten that rush of great feeling uh, chemicals going? Going into your body mm. and then thought to yourself next time you were struggling okay i gotta do this i, I gotta do this got i mean you've done that before right i have maybe when but, you were swimming this morning yeah out well in the ocean yeah how'd that go me, well it was kind of funny I, I plunged in and i came up out of the water and was staring face to face with a blue bottle and i thought damn really so could you tell and, our american listeners yeah uh, blue bottles are a little a jellyfish they're blue they look like a bottle uh, they have a long <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> I should be on radio. Um, you guys are so good at, at your labeling of things. But they've got a long tentacle and they don't kill you, but they, they're really painful and they stick on your skin and it's hard to get them off your skin. And then you've got to go up to the lifeguard tower. And I think it's salt water these days or maybe fresh water. I don't know, but it's it's not nice. And they've had a huge number of come in to um, uh, the beaches this summer for some reason. I don't know, global warming. So that, yeah, that was my morning. And it's funny because it, you feel like you're having a complete fit. You're like, and you're just trying to get so, out of there. So, so so you just see like a sea of them and you turn around. Is that, I mean, it- this is, this is this is the definition of probability and possibility. You walk onto the beach and you see a few that have washed up on the shore and you're like, meh, there's three of them. I'll be fine. <laughs> and then you, yeah. and then you plunge in, you're like, were those were those the first of five million that are just behind them or are they the last? <laughs> <laughs> 
reckon that's the possibility probability calculation in your head. Uh, and, and then that you was get, two standard deviations away right. from the mean. And then you get feedback very quickly. It's like, oh my gosh. I gotta get out of here. Oh god. So okay, so what happens if you get stuck in a big cluster of these things? What well, do you do? You've kind of you've you just gotta get out of there. Like I think diving under And do they come the with you? Like do they stick to you? Yeah, yeah. If their tentacles touch your skin, they're stuck on you. And that's the <sighs> trick then, because then you're peeling the thing off. So then you get stung on your fingers. So do you ever see some poor tourist coming out of the water with blue bottles all over them? <laughs> Not all over them. They only get a couple stuck to them. But yeah, it is okay. pretty grim. Although if the beach is full of them, you just you're not gonna swim really. Yeah, but, I got um, it. What, yeah. Hey, what are what do the lifeguards do? They've got a little treatment. I can't remember. I think it might be warm water. Maybe it's the heat. They have warm, fresh water. And that gets the tentacles off your skin. They don't like and then, okay, so the water they like salt. They like colder salt yeah, water. Yeah, I okay, think that's I the it. trick. And then okay. it just stings, and that's the, the real problem. It just stings. Is it Bondi Rescue? Bondi Rescue. Oh, we should have yeah. them on the podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be, except that would no, that could be fun. That yeah. could be fun. So everybody that's not Australian should know that there's a show down in Australia called Bondi Rescue. That I don't know why, but when I was there, I couldn't stop watching that show. And it is, I don't know why it's so addictive because it's just the same thing over and over. It's some poor tourist <laughs> in trouble at the beach, and these guys having to fish him out. But it, I, it's maybe it's just the way they edited it or whatever. But it's really entertaining. Is this still on? Oh, it's huge! It's the it's the gr- highest grossing thing ever because it costs nothing. It costs <laughs> right, one. Right. Think about that: one cameraman, one sound guy, and then they just hit go, and then they just. It's the reason why reality TV is so oh. popular in some ways because it makes a crap ton of money. So and, much. Well, hey, what what's going on next week? Oh, Ooh. we actually know this time. We do. We you know. I think we can feel safe to say it because we've actually already done the work. We have. What do you think? We've we've put this one in the bank, which is great. We've put this one in the bank. We've got author Todd Downing next week, and he is going to tell us about his incredibly cool book, Calico Kids, that is in between book and audiobook right now. It's really cool. It comes with a Spotify playlist that goes with each chapter. It's really neat. And I I think you're all going to really like that. So I love it. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Terrific. All right. Well, hey, everybody, thank you so much for all of your incredible support. We've got all sorts of good news on the podcast and we have you to thank. If you haven't rated and reviewed us, we'd really love it. And if you haven't told a friend, we'd love for for you to get on board with that. Please. And please fly Qantas. (laughs) You can cut that out. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You totally got me with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so good at this. (laughs) I don't know why that was so funny. Uh, okay, I'll figure out how to land that plane. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that in the middle of your story. It's like, I'm going to land this baby. I'm like, you go, boy. Thank you for joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time.